God in heaven, um, thank you for paying our ransom through your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for being our God who was willing to humble yourself, to come, become a man, to dwell amongst us, to die in our place. We thank you for a time to worship together, to get into your word, and we ask this morning that um, that you would allow your word to get into us, to change the way that we think, and to change our hearts, to change the way that we live, and we ask that you would accomplish that in us this morning. We ask that you not only accomplish that here, um, as we in this room open up your word, but also for our kids as they as they open up your word, uh, work in them, uh, conform us to the image of your Son Jesus Christ through this. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I uh, breathed a sigh of relief when I looked down and saw a clock here. I was panicked. I thought, oh no. You get used to certain things in your, in your, in your home and where they are. I didn't see a clock in the back, and you'll be glad to know I see the clock here. I will promptly finish by 1 p.m. That's when we finish in Michigan. So that won't, I'm sure that won't cause anyone problems. And, uh, you know, it is, it's a privilege to be here. I just want to say thank you so much uh, to the whole First Colony family. Um, thank you for loving, uh, <laughs> um, thank you for loving my mom well. <laughs> thank you for loving my father well and my family. <laughs> um, we've seen and tasted, taste, literally tasted. <laughs> um, we're still tasting. It's still in the freezer. Many is still in the freezer, so... Uh, uh, but we have um, we have tasted the love of Christ through you all, and uh, we feel blessed to know what the family of God is like. Not just not just here, but we have felt it in in Quincy, Michigan as well. And and uh, so we just feel privileged um, and thankful. As, as as Ken mentioned, I think it's been 15 years or so since I've been here and and had an opportunity to be able to speak and. And so that's a joy. Quite a few things have changed. I think we were meeting through those doors in the other in the other room last time. It's a beautiful space that God's blessed you with. I've been faithful. Um, some of the things that haven't changed are so delightful. Um, one of the things is to see familiar faces. And I had to punky promise that she wasn't going to share any stories about me. And that's really good. She said, um, it was even more comforting, she said, well, any stories that... Um, were to be shared, I've forgotten them. And, um, and that's one of the good things about 15 years and time passing. Things have been forgotten. And uh, because there are lots of stories. You guys have changed my diapers, some of you, and uh, the church nursery. And you've got stories about that, I'm sure, you don't want to repeat. And many of you probably uh, remember me being drug out back uh, through down the aisle. And at Braeburn, you get drug out back, and then there, there was, there was, you go out to the parking lot, and Dad would um, uh, chasten me, and um, and then when you, the word was, hey, when you stop crying, you can come back in. So, thank you for the love. It's good to see so many familiar. I love the diversity of of the body of Christ here and the expression here at First Colony. That's a taste of heaven uh, for me. And uh, so that's, that's sweet to be back here. Um, 
So, um, with that, I, can I pray again? And then we'll, God, it is just so good to be here. And um, uh, just a flood of memories and emotions that come. And so I just want to say thank you for this privilege. And God, I ask that you would increase and that I would decrease. And that um, that would be true of, of each one of us. And so, um, God, again, take your word. And, um, and accomplish your purpose in each one of us this morning. And I, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was uh, July 19th, 1989, and uh, Flight 232 took off from Denver um, Stapleton International Airport, and it was en route to Chicago, and from there it was headed on to Philadelphia, its final destination. And not long after takeoff, uh, it experienced a catastrophic failure. A fin from the tail engine on the DC-10, uh, Flight 232, sheared off, and it went through um, the tail like a hot knife through butter. And when it when it sheared off, and when that inch piece of engine sheared off, it went through a, a point in the tail where all three hydraulic systems converge, and, and it's, a, it's a unique place. There's only one place in the aircraft where all three hydraulic systems converge, and it's right there at that point. And as a result, it severed and rendered all three hydraulic systems. For each engine, the three engines um, have a hydraulic system, and so it rendered the plane virtually unflyable because not only um, could you not steer the aircraft, you can control, um, you know, the the pitch, or it couldn't bank, it couldn't turn, it couldn't slow down when it hit the ground or when it landed. And, and it also, you lost the tail engine. So they did have two engines remaining. That was the only things that the pilots could control on that airplane were the engines that were under the two wings. Well, um, it was an unheard of situation, totally unanticipated. It was an impossible situation. The flight engineers on the ground went through 45 different iterations of how could they safely land the aircraft? And uh, what, they, what they said was it was impossible. Every, every attempt they could to come up with a way to be able to land the aircraft ended up in catastrophic failure. Well, um, what were they going to do? Uh, what they ended up doing was the, the men there in the cockpit ended up controlling the two remaining engines and increasing or decreasing the speed of the engine, and they ended up landing the aircraft. Well, it was, it was not a perfect landing whatsoever, but they got down to the ground, and of the 296 souls that were on board, 184 of them were saved. Um, still, 112 lives were lost. It was a tragedy, but it could have been much, much worse. When uh, Captain Haynes was interviewed after... After the time to recover, um, after the people healed, he asked, he was asked, you know, what did he credit to the safe landing of the aircraft? And not only Captain Haynes, but the experts who assessed the situation, they attributed the success to teamwork. A lot of times we want to say, well, it was this heroic captain who obviously sees the situation and he safely. enabled these 184 people's lives to be saved. And he said, no, it was, it was teamwork. Look what Captain Haynes said 
This is from a book called The Performance Factor. Captain Haynes said, The preparation that paid off for the crew was something called cockpit resource management. The fancy word for teamwork. He said, Up until 1980, we kind of worked on the concept that the captain was the authority on the aircraft. What he said goes. And we lost a few airplanes because of that. Sometimes the captain isn't as smart as we thought he was. And we would listen to him and do what he said. And we wouldn't know what he's talking about. And we had 103 years of flying experience there in the cockpit trying to get that airplane on the ground, not one minute of which we had actually practiced, any one of us. So why would I know more about getting that airplane on the ground under those conditions than the other three? So if I hadn't used CRM, if we had not let everybody put their input in, it's a cinch. We wouldn't have made it. Now, we have similar number of souls here this morning. And although the crises that, um, that we interact with probably don't involve our loss of physical lives. The crises that you and I interact with here today, um, after lunch, around the dinner table, around the water cooler, tomorrow morning, um, on the practice field, they involve the crises that have eternal ramifications. I'm talking about people's eternal souls and their lives. That uh, a church has an opportunity to impact and influence. That, you're, that you have an opportunity to have an influence on in your workplace and in your family. And, and you're leading in each one of these places. You might think, well, I'm not really leading anyone well, everyone has an opportunity, and in reality, everyone is influencing someone. Whether you are influencing for the negative or influencing for the positive, you're leading people. And so how we lead in the midst of these situations and through these crises has eternal ramifications. So we have an opportunity uh, to lead well. And so what does that look like? What does that look like to lead well in, in the midst of these situations? And so what I want to do is, is I want to um, show you some of the things that, that I've discovered in, um, from God's Word. So it's many of these things from God's Word. They're not new. All right? um, some things from God's Word, also some things from, um, from, from literature, some that I've just read. Uh, also, some things from some primary research I've done with some case studies in churches. This is all done for my uh, dissertation we just finished. And uh, so hopefully what we can see in the midst of this is, first off, uh, what's the problem with solo leadership? The captain of the ship, the Lone Ranger, what's the problem with that and what's God's solution? All right. and, and then secondly and thirdly, what I want to do, I just want to point out two characteristics of, of team leadership and, and hopefully the difference that it can make in your own sphere of influence that you find yourself in. Um, this would just be scratching the surface um, of, 
of what is in the Scriptures and what we could talk about this topic. But hopefully it will help you. And like I said, I think it's transferable to whatever context you find yourself leading in and will help you uh, to lead well in the midst of that. So, um, first off, what I want to do, as I said, I want to point out the problem with that, that solo um, Lone Ranger leadership and, and then the solution that we find in God's Word. Uh, and so, turn, turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18 is where we're going to start. I think what you'll see is that Lone Ranger leadership is dysfunctional. It often will result in burnout of leaders and it often too hurt people and hurt churches. The, the, first, the first scenario that we see here in Exodus chapter 18, uh, Moses is, is leading this throng of the children of Israel and maybe three million people in the wilderness. And, and when you think of strong leaders, I mean, that's the kind of person when you think of the people of God, you have the, this picture of Moses. I mean, he is the ultimate uh, lone ranger, strong leader. But Moses is met in the wilderness by his father-in-law, Jethro. Jethro shows up there in, in the wilderness. And he's bringing uh, Moses' wife, and he brings uh, his sons, and he observes what's going on, and this is what he says. He says in Exodus 18, 17, 18, uh, the thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Uh, what Jethro, the priest of Midian, points out to Moses is, hey, not only is this not good for you, Moses, but this isn't good for your people. What he found is Moses would start early in the morning and he'd start judging cases at sunup and then he would long into the night, he would still be judging people. And he said, this isn't good, Moses. You've got to change some things. And, and really, the people of God um, for millennia have been looking for people like Moses. Show me the great leader who can lead us, who can solve our problems and answer our questions. And uh, what we see in the scriptures is that that's not, that's not a healthy solution. Uh, so what is God's solution for uh, healthy leadership? And, and I think a good place that we can look is Titus 1.5 for just a taste of this. In Titus 1.5... Paul is writing to Titus, and he's telling him what he needs to do. Titus is um, some way almost like a missionary on Crete, and he's establishing, planting churches there in Crete. And he tells, Paul tells Titus what he needs to do as he's leading here for these churches. Look what he says, Titus 1.5. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Notice what Paul tells Titus to do. He says, appoint elders. Plural. Plural. 
Um, not, not one. Don't look for, don't look for the superstar. Don't look for the rock star. Appoint a team of leaders to overlook, oversee these churches. Um, if you look through the scriptures, um, the words translated elders here, um, presbyteros, um, every time that you see it in the New Testament, other, there's three instances where it's not a plural. Uh, a couple of them are in um, the beginning of Second and Third John. John identifies himself. John the Apostle identifies himself as the elder. It was probably more of a like a, a familial type of identification. Like I'm I'm the I'm the old guy. You know I'm the older. I'm the elder. Um, so it really wasn't. If he was talking about an office there that he wanted to name himself as the authority, uh, he probably would have identified himself as the apostle. But he doesn't. He just says, because the whole, the, even those letters were kind of family toned, and so he says, hey, I'm the elder. Uh, the other instance where elder is singular is in 1 Timothy, and he was specifically talking about charges made against an elder, and he says, so it would only naturally fit for it to be a singular. So the point in that is that uh, all through the New Testament, God's model for leading his church was, hey, it needs to be a team. It needs to be a plurality of leaders, um, not unlike you have here at First Colony. Right? Um, so that was God's design. That was His best. You know, one of the one of the typical uh, rebuttals is, well, you know, what about Peter? I mean, Peter is the ultimate example, right? I mean, Jesus gives him gives him the mantle of leadership, and he's going to be. Um, he's going to be the, the sole point leader of the church, right? Peter says in 1 Peter 5.1, he identifies himself as a fellow elder, a, a co-elder is what some, some translations would say. Um, there's a prefix before the word elder, sum, and it means the idea of working together. So even Peter, the guy who many would say, okay, he's the guy, he would say, you know, I'm, I'm one amongst a team. So, uh, God's best for, for the church would be that it would be led by a team. Healthy churches are led by a team of leaders. Um, you know, secular and uh, Christian news stories are full of bad examples of We've seen that. The news has been full of it the last uh, several years. Um, you know, I'm, and I'm not revealing anything new, but I mean, these are guys that, um, I mean, I, I've listened to their podcasts. I've, I've uh, read their books. You've been to their conferences. You know, it's uh, Mark Driscoll, uh, James McDonald, Bill Hybels, Tulian Chavijan. I mean, you're like, what, what happened? In each one of these scenarios, um, you know, there were, there were different things that happened, but um, where they become, well, they become solo leaders, and not only do they fall in the midst of tragic, sinful choices, um, but the church around them is deeply hurt. The people, wreckage of lives, and you're like, what, what was it? Well, um, you have a team, and we're working together. It was it was one person um, leading leading the church. 
So what you see is that healthy churches are led by teams. Um, that doesn't just happen. It, it, it's not as easy as it sounds. All right. Uh, what is that? Uh, what kind of characteristics make up that kind of a team? And what kind of what kind of characteristics are typical of leaders that can function and lead as a team? All right. And so I just there are numerous that we saw in not only in scripture but in literature and in uh, case study research. But but what I want to do is I just want to point out a couple a couple that quite honestly might surprise you because they're so common and, well, they're just kind of right underneath our noses, but they're often overlooked. And so, um, as I said, these characteristics can help you just as much in your home as they can in the church. So um, the first characteristic that I wanted to point out is, uh, is found in John chapter 13. Is a place where we see it first. Well, that's the place where I want to go first. John chapter 13, starting in verse 12. What you're going to see is that healthy churches are led by teams of humble leaders. John chapter 13, verses 12 and 13. Jesus is... With his disciples, he's passing on the baton of leadership to his disciples. They're going to be the ones who are going to lead the church going forward. And on the last night before he would die on the cross, he, he tells them the key to, to leading. And he says something that's not typical for leaders. He writes, or he says, So when he had finished, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And Lord was the title of someone who was the preeminent leader, right? The point leader. And you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That's not what they were expecting to hear. They wanted some great leadership advice. Give me some, give me some pointers on how to lead going forward. I mean, obviously, no better leader than Jesus. I mean, he was, uh, but his instructions were very counterintuitive. And, and he modeled it, and he washed their feet. Uh, we saw it uh, yesterday in a wedding, and I watched Josh and Addison wash each other's feet, and you realize that this isn't just, this isn't just instructions for, um, it's not just instructions for the church, or it's not just instructions for a leading a business well, but it's instructions for leading in a, in a home well, and in a marriage well. And, and you realize that Jesus, what he's saying is, be humble. Be humble. Uh, if you want to lead well, if you want to lead a team well, you need to be humble. Uh, you need to be willing to do things that um, that typical leaders aren't willing to do. You've got to be willing to, to let go of what is rightfully yours. And that's really what Jesus did. He had the right to be Lord. And what does he do? He takes on the job of a servant. Let me wash your feet. 
one of the books that I had the privilege of reading and enjoying was it's called Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. Six Characteristics of High-Performance Teams. It's actually published by the Naval Institute Press. Um, it was uh, written by Taylor Kyland and Peter Fretwell. And um, what they found when they, they looked at groups of POWs, and as they studied, they were studying uh, POWs, they, they realized that there was this group of POWs that were outliers. There was, there was something different about them. What, what made them... Um, have such better outcomes. I mean, after they had been prisoners of war, they had uh, higher education levels when they got out. They had longer lasting relationships. They had fewer cases of PTSD. Um, they had um, higher incomes. I mean, there was all these outcomes that they studied after they were imprisoned. And they said, what's different about these guys? And they were all from this one group. And they had all been in the Hanoi Hilton. John McCain was one of them. Okay. And, and so they, they kind of drew out of the study six characteristics that identified these, these POWs. They were, almost all of them were um, fighter pilots. So and these are guys who are like egos that are bigger than life, right? They were fighter pilots. Uh, they had been uh, in the Air Force or in the Navy. They'd been shot down, and they'd been imprisoned in Hanoi Hilton. Um, a brutal place. I mean, it was, you know, POW camps in general, not a good place. Um, but this was one of the worst as far as they can look back and, and study those things. And, and what was it that they saw um, from their time there? And of the six things, the one thing that I want to mention to you is humility. Humility. They call it the servant leader or uh, you're your brother's keeper. Like, uh, how could that make a difference? Why would that mark a person? Why, how would that turn them into a team? And I just want to read to you one, one little excerpt from, from this chapter. And it was about two guys. Uh, one guy was named uh, Major Fred Cherry. The other one was Lieutenant Porter Halliburton. And they were put in the same cell together. Uh, I guess their captors decided that this would be a way to continue to, to mess with them. And um, one of them was black, one of them was white, so they were a different race. Uh, they were both from the South. They realized at the time the racial tensions were off the chart. And so they said, hey, we'll put them in the cell together, and this will get them fighting amongst one another, and, and we'll just see what they do. This is what happened. A major Cherry underwent three primitive surgeries to attempt to repair the shoulder he had shattered when he was shot down. Either because his surgeons were inept or because they didn't care about his fate, or both, Cherry suffered mightily. The first surgery produced few results, and the cast for doctors encased him in was too tight to foster healing. He was barely able to breathe, much less move. Halliburton became his cellmate's nurse, helping him go to the bathroom, eat, and rehabilitate. According to Hirsch, Halliburton feared that inactivity would cause Cherry to wither away, so he wanted his roommate to exercise. You have to walk to get your strength, he said. Oh, Hallie, I can't. And he couldn't, at least not by himself. So he draped his right arm around Halliburton, 
leaned against him, and the two inched their way around the cell. They had walked for only a few minutes when Cherry, exhausted, grabbed Halliburton, who caught him, and carried him back to his bunk, like a soldier leaving the battlefield who would not leave his buddy behind. Survival transcended all other concerns, and traditional sources of tension, race, service, rank, family background, were replaced by the bonds of compassion and sacrifice. You see, um, humility is a characteristic that um, is an effective leadership characteristic in whatever sphere of influence you find yourself in. One of the, um, the churches that I had the privilege of, of studying, it's called Countryside Bible Church. And Countryside is led by a group of five pastor elders. That's how they identify themselves. And um, they, uh, they have uh, on that leadership team, there are two guys who are full-time paid pastors. There are two guys who are part-time paid pastors. And there's one guy who's just complete volunteer pastor elder. So they're all pastor elders. They all have the same title. Uh, they all uh, share in discussions. They all, everyone's voice is heard when they have, when they have discussions. I had an opportunity to not only interview them, but I had an opportunity to sit in in their leadership meetings and I've seen the ministry and things that they do and in our community and around. They're actually, Countryside is positioned about, it's about, 30 minutes away from, from our church, and um, it's near a town called Jonesville. Jonesville is about 2,000 people, and, um, and countryside's mm, a couple miles outside of this uh, town. You're like, why would you, why would you want to study this little rural church? I mean, what, one of the things that not only have I seen the fruit of their ministry for, for quite a while, and I also do some similar ministry at Hillsdale College, and our churches have interacted multiple ways because of that. Um, was it, there were some exceptional things about some things that they had done. One of them was uh, the pastor who was there before was a guy named Pastor John Lilly. And Pastor Lilly had been there now, he's going on 40 years. And he, um, in 1981, um, a few years after he had started there, the church was about 35 people. So over the last um, the last 35 years or so that he's been there, the church in this town of 2,000 people uh, grew from 35 people to over 300 people. Now you might say, well, yeah, that's, that's 300 people. Yeah, it's not that you know, not a, it's not magazines aren't be written about about that. All right. Um, but what's exceptional is that this church grew uh, by 900% in a community that has been stagnant population-wise. I mean, you're not talking about the community growing exponentially and then the church kind of growing along with it. You're talking about a church that's grown exponentially with this community that's just remaining the same. Like, so what's, what's going on here? Why, why is it doing that? Well, uh, the church's, the church's um, motto is members of the church work together to glorify God by sharing his word and by mentoring, serving, and supporting each other. And they've done just that, and they've modeled it from their leadership team. One of the things that's exceptional that I kept seeing uh, was this idea of humility. 
a couple ways that I saw it, that, in, in many ways, but I just want to point out a couple. All right. Pastor Lilly, you know, you know, was many look at it and say, well, here's the point leader who'd been following for over three decades. But a couple of years ago, they decided, okay, we need to go through a leadership transition. And so there's one guy who had been a pastor there for over 10 years. He had been the youth pastor and um, and they went through this leadership transition, which is very unique because even though he had been the leader of the church uh, for for over three decades, uh, he was able to pass on literally the staff of leadership, and then he's remained there as one of the elders and one of the pastors. Now he's a part-time guy, and you have another guy that stepped in. The old youth pastor stepped in, and he's the he's the senior pastor. Very abnormal for this to take place. And I was like, how did they how did they make this happen? Humility, I think, is the primary thing. Um, for example, so I'm sitting in this, I'm sitting in this uh, meeting, and they're trying to, the elders are trying to decide how are we gonna, what are we gonna do about this Asian pastors conference? They were uh, talking about starting, um, having a pastors training conference in in Singapore, and they were gonna train Chinese pastors that were gonna come in there, and. Uh, so how are we going to do this? And they were debating about it. And, and, and it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't, everyone wasn't agreeing. They were all being yes men. So people were stating their opinions and going back and forth. And, and um, Pastor Lilly would express his opinion and, and, and other people would listen. But at the same time, uh, other people, uh, he gave the other people opportunity to chime in. And he would ask the new senior pastor, his name is Pastor Rob, ask him, what his opinion was, and rather than everyone just kind of, you know, okay, we're just going to do what Pastor Lilly said, um, everyone was deferring to one another. They were all listening to one another. They would ask questions of one another. I was like, this is very unique. Here's a guy, he obviously should be reigning over the whole thing because, I mean, he's been leading so long, I mean, surely they would do it. It's remarkable to watch it all take place. Then they arrive at a really good solution together, allowing people to chime in. Um, one of the other things that was very exceptional besides this, deference to one another was that um, when I had opportunity to talk to them individually, I asked them, how did you guys, how did you go, go about picking who the next senior pastor was going to be? Who's the first among equals is probably a little bit more accurate description of how their, their leadership team functioned. And so Pastor Rob, who's the new senior pastor, he says, well, you know, it felt a little bit weird because there's this other guy named Pastor Bob and Pastor Bob, he said, He's actually a better teacher than I am. And I was like, wow. There's not very many pastors. Pastors kind of hold their preaching kind of close to their chest, and we're kind of, you know, it's kind of ego, you know, thing. And so you, to say someone else on your same team is a better teacher than you, you're like, well, um, that's kind of hard to do. What does that take? Well, it takes humility. It takes humility to understand, you know what, there could be someone who's more gifted than I am, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let them do this. Uh, it was exceptional. An exceptional understanding of how God puts together teams and how we can function well if we're understanding of how the gifts are and I'm going to let someone else do that. Um, he still does a lot of the teaching, um, but I've heard Bob and Rob teach and they're both really solid teachers, but their team functions well when they understand, okay, you know what? He's a really gifted guy. We're going to let him do that. Um, it's not, and humility isn't a... Um, it's not a false denial of your gifting. That's not humility. Um, it, it's, a, 
It's an understanding that this is how I'm gifted or this is my position and I'm willing to give it up. I'm willing to give you the floor. I'm willing to listen to what you have to say. I'm willing to acknowledge that you might be more gifted or you might be more experienced or maybe God has given you knowledge that I don't have. And so I'm going to listen to you just like that pilot. Patrick Lencioni says in his book, The Ideal Team Player. I just saw this in the airport um, when we were flying here. And I thought, man, that's cool. Um, what does it say? What does he have to say? And, and remarkably, I wasn't looking for it. Number one virtue of a team player, humble. <laughs> this is just a secular book. Right? He says this, humility is the single greatest and most indispensable attribute of being a team player. I think it applies. It applies in this church. It applies in our church. It applies in your business. It applies in our homes. Husbands, humbly love your wives. Listen to them. God's given you them the gift. Um, What's the second characteristic that I want to point out? There could be lots of them. I could go on. I'm already past my time. I'm going to get fired. So. Um, the second one's kingdom-mindedness. Kingdom-mindedness. Um, healthy churches are led by humble, kingdom-minded leaders. Um, Matthew 6.33, Jesus says this, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We're commanded to seek God's kingdom first. If you're going to be, and, and this really flows from humility. If you're going to be a, a humble leader, and what you're saying ultimately is, okay, um, God's kingdom is more important than mine. And if you're if you're on a team, it is very normal for pastors or elders or leaders or any in a business. It's very normal for you to protect, for us to protect our silo, to perfect protect our kingdom. So we hold on to it with a closed hand, and so we don't want to give up. Uh, resources. We don't give up people and control of them. We don't want to give up money and control of it. And so we just hold it tight to us. And what Jesus says is, you know what? If you want to lead well in whatever experience you are, you've got to be a kingdom-minded person who says, you know, it's about your kingdom and I'm going to seek it first. And so you've got to be willing to let go. At Pine Ridge, one of the things that we have have, have seen and that God has done, and we've, we've strived to be a sending church. And, and that's not easy. Um, because, um, if, for example, a couple of years ago, one of our guys had been a youth pastor for 27 years at the church, and, and uh, he was sensing he was called by God to go and help a church that had been planted about about 10 minutes away from from a church in a neighboring community called Coldwater. And, um, you know, a lot of not only his friendship and partnership in ministry, but a a lot of relationships that are connected to him and people. You're like, okay, are we going to let go? Are we going to seek God's kingdom first? Are we going to hold on? And uh, what we found is that when you... Uh, seek God's kingdom first. He provides for your needs. Um, the, the leadership holes that are left, He takes care of me, fills them. 
the dollars that you think, oh, boy, I don't know, how, what are we going to do? Um, God takes care of it. And that's what he says. Seek first his kingdom and all these things that we give you as well. Just like humility, it doesn't add up on a human scale, but in God's economy it does. Uh, we, um, Pendridge doesn't, you know, no articles being written about us in magazines are not being written up in Christianity Today or anything like that. Um, but uh, one of the things I s- started looking at is, is we look back and the whole attendance at Pinehurst is pretty flat over, you know, a couple of decades. You know, it didn't change a whole bunch. But I started looking back and I started just counting and started seeing uh, where people were going. And, and I realized that over the, last, over the last 15 years or so, um, 42 people have, have been sent out from Pine Ridge. And I'm not just saying, like, okay, we're, we're financially supporting these missionaries. Um, I'm, these are people that left and went to, to seminary. These are people that are, are vocational missionaries in local ministries. These are people who are international uh, missionaries in places like South Sudan and South Africa and uh, around the globe, church planting in Papua New Guinea. And, and you're like, so that's like three people a year. And, and each one of those is like, okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust that the Lord's going to take care of them. And as we send them out and go, we're going to seek his kingdom first and to remind ourselves, okay, God, you'll take care of our needs. We're going to seek your kingdom first. See, healthy churches are led by humble, kingdom-minded leaders. Ultimately, we, um, we follow Christ. And regardless of the sphere of influence you have, in Philippians chapter 2, in Philippians 2, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, um, I pray that that would be our attitude. That uh, regardless of the context that we are leading in, that we would be humble, kingdom-minded, Christ-like leaders. People who, um, who are willing, like Christ, to give up that which is ours for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, our desire is for Christ to be exalted in each one of our spheres of influence. So help us, Lord, in moments when we find ourselves at those decision-making points. What do we do? How do we respond? to be humble like Jesus, our ultimate example. And may the gospel go forward through our responses and through the way that we interact with one another. And May people see Christ in us as a result of the way that we lead. We pray these things in Christ's name.